The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great uh, episode ahead. Uh, Phil, over to you to kick us off. All right. Thanks. So I have been watching this Bed Bath & Beyond bloodbath or, or bloodbath and beyond, as some people are calling it, this disaster that's been unfolding in in front of us for the past few months. And uh, I'm just fascinated by it. So I want to I'll lay out the situation a little bit for anyone who hasn't been paying close attention to it. And then I have a question, a, kind of a, a, a proposition, and I want to see how you guys think about it. And, and I, don't, I don't know exactly what I, I feel strongly about it, but I don't know that there's a clear answer. So we'll, we'll get to that part. But anyway, it actually goes back um, a little bit in time and there's a little bit of history here that, that'll be instructive. And I had totally forgotten about this until friend of the podcast and Wall Street Journal writer extraordinaire Spencer Jacob put something on Twitter about George Economou. And if anybody remembers that name, it's for good reason because he's he's one of the original meme stock kings back before there was such a thing as meme stock. So going back 10 or 15 years, uh, he became a billionaire. He, he's a Greek uh, shipping tycoon, which I know is kind of a, a cliche from central casting, but but bear with me. He's a billionaire Greek shipping tycoon who owned a company called Dry Ships. Uh, he also owned a related company called Ocean Rig, which was a deep water offshore driller. Um, and so I was I was familiar with this company because at my old firm way back in the day, um, we had some exposure to the the bonds and the bank debt. Um, at both guys. And there was a convert at, at dry ships as well, which we'll get back, we'll get to. But George Economy was famous for once saying when he was doing the roadshow uh, for listing NASDAQ, listing dry ships on the NASDAQ, when someone said, you know, why are you listing dry ships here? You know, it's a, it's a European shipping company. Uh, why not do it in London or somewhere else? And he said, uh, America has the dumbest investors and it's a very deep market. <laughs> And he was just very upfront about the fact that he was out to raise as much money on as favorable terms as he could possibly get. And he really didn't care how it was done. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily quite get to the level of legal fraud, which is a concept we've talked a lot about. Um, but he was certainly willing to push the envelope. And it was very much a dog eat dog mentality. And if he screwed people along the way, you know, so be it. That was really how it goes. And for anybody, it's it's kind of a funny side story. But I actually proposed to Spencer Jacob when he posted this thing on Twitter that he should write 
um, an update to Will Thorndike's famous book, The Outsiders. And this one would be called The Insiders, Eight Unconventional CEOs and Their Radically Devious Blueprints for Legally Screwing Their Investors. And we could come up with, I, I actually did come up with eight perfect examples of that right off the top of my head. And I do think that'd be a fascinating book, by the Are way. Are you ready? Could you list them right now? I can, but like part of what made me hesitant about like really pushing the, like if I put my name on this, like one of them is a famously litigious CEO, right? Yeah. And so like, I, I think a very legitimate concern you'd have to have in writing this book would be that you'd need to have like, like a big journalistic name behind you, you know, like the Wall Street Journal or be like a, you know, a well-known reputable author. Because if you're just some Joe Blow who writes this book and you, Fictionalize them each and make it kind of like, I guess, not exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you can try to do that. It's not a bad idea, actually. I guess you could because then everybody would still probably know who you're talking about pretty easily. But and then um, it's a novel, a a financial thriller that has a broader audience. (laughs) Yeah, and there there are actually a few of those out there, believe it or not. But uh, anyway, so that that just got me thinking about this whole concept of like the insiders who are, you know, legally screwing their own investors and, and what that looks like. And like the meme stock thing we've talked about here ad nauseum, and I'm I'm hesitant to bring it up again, although I think it's one of the more defining events of my investing lifetime. Like it's just so bonkers. But you fast forward then from George Economou who who raised this like really ingenious but devious convertible preferred issue in 2016 and kind of financially engineered his way out of a bankruptcy by legally screwing some investors. And you go to the Hertz bankruptcy in the early days of the pandemic. So if anyone recalls Hertz, the car rental company filed for bankruptcy in in May of 2020. And, you know, for obvious reasons, right, the pandemic just gutted their business and it's a difficult business to begin with. And while the company was under Chapter 11 protection, it caught a meme stock bounce. And so the stock, I believe, never actually crossed below a dollar. If it did, it wasn't much and it wasn't for very long. And then all of a sudden, like days later, because of message board mania, the stock had traded up considerably and it still had a very significant equity market cap, even though it was very clear that the bonds were trading at very distressed levels. There was going to be an impairment there and the equity was going to be completely wiped out. And Hertz filed to take advantage of filed with the bankruptcy court to take advantage of this bounce in the equity price to raise new equity. And they were going to issue a disclaimer that said, we do not expect a recovery for the equity. But if you want to buy this worthless piece of paper, like go ahead. That's literally what the paper effectively said, you know, in in this bankruptcy filing, which was that this paper is expected to have no value, but we're selling it anyway. And we're basically going to take this new money that's raised from the equity, new equity money that comes in and just hand it right over to the creditors. And if you're good with that, because that's fun or funny to you, like, great, like the creditors win. And, and, you know, as everyone knows or should know, like when you're in the zone of insolvency, like you can't just take home run swings to try to benefit yourself as the equity holders. If you're the executive management team, you have to consider the whole enterprise. And if the the creditors in this case were the controlling stakeholders in the fulcrum security and you were going to be benefiting the creditors. So it's good for the estate. So the bankruptcy judge signed off on it. And that's a fascinating proposition. And and we can come back to that later if we want. But they started this equity offering and then the SEC came in and shut it down and basically said, you can't sell paper that you know is worthless. And so they had to stop the equity proceedings right there. 
but the fascinating part is because the reflexivity of this whole meme stock mania had kicked in so much and the equity continued to trade up through this whole thing. And because there was now the prospect of fresh, fresh equity capital coming in, the bonds and the bank debt traded up. And then it set off kind of a bidding war for the assets of the company such that creditors were trying to outbid each other to the point that they put a crazy valuation on the company and the equity did end up recovering some value. So, you know, of course, in like the ultimate self-delusion, I'm sure some of those original meme stock investors felt justified <laughs> by the outcome, even though the original decision made absolutely no sense. It made less than no sense. Anyway, that's all the background as to kind of how we got here and we're getting this extra, extra crazy version of it now with Bed Bath & Beyond. So going back to the last several years or even the last five or 10 years, the, the longtime founders of Bed Bath & Beyond who were incredible merchants and business people are long gone. The company's been struggling for years. It's gone through like multiple iterations of disastrous strategy changes. Um, and the, the pandemic boom and then bust was really, really painful for them on multiple levels. And so starting in kind of the middle of 2022, the company was clearly running into significant financial distress, was really in trouble. And it was pretty obvious that they were going to have to file for bankruptcy. And they were they were starting that process. And then get into the beginning part of this year, 2023, they actually missed uh, February, February 1st interest payments. And they had actually received a notice of default from their banks, which is, you know, really quite rare. And all along the way, the company had been shopping itself and had been trying to raise money and try to secure uh, support for a restructuring to do a prepackaged bankruptcy and find some sort of bid for its assets out there. And it had about $2 billion of funded debt uh, coming in to this period, and the bonds, the most junior securities at the time that were that were in the credit stack, were trading at like five cents, five to ten cents on the dollar. So if you had wanted to, you could have said, you know, hey, I have, you know, a couple hundred million dollars, a quarter billion dollars, whatever it is, I want to come in and own the entire company free and clear of debt. I'm just going to come in and buy out the whole credit stack and be done with it. I mean, it probably would have taken a little more than that, but you get the idea, right? Fast forward a week or two. And, you know, this was, this was subject to the, the, the pump and dump scheme. I hate to call it that, but that's really what it was. When, when Ryan Cohen turned it into a meme stock last year and then hit the exits, I should have probably started with that. That happened second, third quarter, I believe of last year of 2022. Uh, it still kind of had this patina of meme stock mania on it. And so even though the company's missed an interest payment and received a notice of default, even though it literally can't find a buyer to bid anything for its assets, it's literally facing a free fall bankruptcy, right? I mean, this is very likely to be converted to a chapter seven, a liquidation, which is also, again, not like the normal course you'd, you'd see for a business here, right? This is a company that truly has no prospects for any sort of value here. It's 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 really quite amazing. But what ended up happening was... They found a way to to raise what is ultimately going to be about a billion dollars of fresh equity. But again, instead of the equity coming in and just being handed over immediately to the creditors, which is what would have otherwise had to happen, or instead of somebody coming in with a fresh billion dollars and saying, like, I really see this as a viable business and something I'd like to own and and taking over the assets and the and the company itself, the company structured basically a, a legalized structured vault trade in the public markets, whereby they're selling convertible preferred stock at a, at a variable rate. So the rate is not set on any given day. It's actually set on any given day at the lowest price 
the lowest VWAP, the volume weighted average price, at any point over the trailing 10 days at at least an 8% discount. And then there are there's a floor of about 71 cents on the on the common stock and a, and a cap of a little over three. So if the stock goes below 71 cents, these new preferable convertible preferred holders could lose money. And above that, they're they're capped out a little bit on their gains. But the whole idea here is that they're going to get this look back price at a discount to the market price, and then just bleed stock out into the market at a premium to what they've paid for it. So they're just going to take money and hand it over to the company and then stick it to the retail traders out there at, at what is almost guaranteed to be a losing trade for them and almost guaranteed to be a winning trade for the hedge fund. The hedge fund's name is Hudson Bay Capital Management. And they, they may not have taken the whole deal. They probably took the lion's share of it. There's some minimum thresholds that they had to meet. And they could well have partnered up with some people who didn't, didn't have their name on the transaction. But you get the idea. This is literally just a structured vol trade for a very, very smart hedge fund to take advantage of these meme stock suckers who are going to be buying worthless stock from them at a premium. And this is not, again, this hedge fund has no interest in owning the assets. It has no interest in sticking around. They're literally just acting as a middleman here, which again, from the company's perspective, makes some sense because they want a little bit of distance here, right? They saw what happened with Hertz and they're saying, okay, it might not be such a great look for us to go out and sell worthless equity in the public markets. And if we sell more than 20% as a NASDAQ listed company, we'd have to get a shareholder vote on that. We don't have time for that because like we're in a free fall bankruptcy type situation here. So on the one hand, you have to give it to them that this is like a very creative uh, solution. And, you know, there's a, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that if you are the management of this company, if you're the CEO, the CFO, the board of directors, um, you have a fiduciary duty here to try to save the company. Uh, but this is just not an economic transaction here. Like there's still no case to be made that this business is worth anything and that it wouldn't be good in the destructive progress, the, the, the forces of capitalism that caused the old and infirm to die and the new companies to come along and replace them. This just slows that down. This is just creating a zombie company where these irrational, uninformed, retail meme stock traders are buying overpriced or worthless stock from a really smart, sophisticated hedge fund that's guaranteed to make money on it. Um, and, and it's a very convoluted structure. I mean, I, I, you know, this sounds like a Matt Levine fan cast instead of our podcast, but he really is unbelievably good. And he wrote a couple columns about it. And, and he said, you know, he, he's a Yale trained lawyer, worked at Wachtell Lipton doing M&A and then structured. He literally wrote equity derivatives like this at Goldman Sachs for four or five years. And he, he couldn't understand some of the nuances of the deal because it was designed purposefully by these insiders and the hedge fund to be opaque, right? They don't want anyone else but them to understand how this works. So how could this be a good thing for capital markets? How could this be a good thing for the economy? And so I was talking about this with John offline a little bit, like, I don't have a problem if people want to gamble. I know it's a human instinct. I know you're not going to just regulate it out of existence. You're just going to force it underground. I'm not some pearl clutching, you know, moralist who's like, you can't gamble on the Super Bowl or whatever, the World Cup. Like, I, I get it. Like, that's fine. There's a place for that. Hopefully, people can have enough positives from it, some sort of enjoyment to offset the negatives from all the people that have their lives ruined by gambling addiction when they're making bets they can't afford to make. But that's not. This this is not supposed to be that. It's not good for markets. It's not good for our country, our society, our world to have our capital markets turned into a casino 
where people are intentionally screwed and taken advantage of. So is the right solution here to ban this? Like, should the SEC have stepped in here like they did with the Hertz sale and bankruptcy and shut this thing down? I don't know. I worry about the unintended consequences of of regulatory overreach there too. Like I really am torn as to what the right answer is to this whole mess. So I'll I'll stop with that and kick it over to you guys. I want to hear what you guys have to think about it. Yeah, I I actually don't think gambling is the right word for it because I think there's, you know, we talked about this with uh, GameStop before. It's a zealotry. Like these people think they are sticking yeah. it to the man. I've listened yeah, that's to- true. A couple minutes. That's that's all I'll confess to of the uh, AMC spaces. It's nothing about like some of these people are actually very explicit in their willingness to lose money. Yeah, that's to true. Yeah, cause harm and pain to hedge funds for whatever reason. And um, you know, I think when when you put it in those terms, it's almost um, it, well. Well, it, it's also funny that the same, the other crop of these same people will will say like, you know, when it doesn't work for them and they lose money, that it was a conspiracy. But it's like everything's the cards are out, man. They're not hiding what's happening here. It just takes a little looking and listening to the right people. Hey, you know, come listen to this. You laid that out phenomenally, Phil. Appreciate uh, how how you pulled the story together. Um, you know, I think I I, I think it's. Um, one of the weird like uh, aftershocks of what happened during COVID when people who shouldn't have been in the market got involved in the market. And I think it's kind of crazy, you know, as much as the last year has seen uh, lofty valuations deflate, GameStop and AMC have held up better as stocks than some real businesses that got ahead of themselves. And so one way or another, this meme money has stayed in the market and I can't for the life of me explain how or why that's the case. Yeah. So you, you actually raise a good point though, too, that that's worth revisiting. Cause I, I brought up the gambling thing because there is some element of that that happened at the same time, right? Like the, the Dave Portman, like, like stocks never go down. Like I'm just going to ride this stuff and like the day trading and all that, like that, that was clearly just, kind of pure gambling, I guess. But then you're right. Like there's this weird antisocial, like we're going to stick it to the man based on this really warped misunderstanding of how short selling works and how hedge funds work and how exchanges work and and like all these weird conspiracy theories about AMC and Ken Griffin and whatever. Like the problem with that is like, it's not just that they're wrong. It's that when they inevitably lose, even if they say they're willing to lose money, that's not a good thing, right? Like screwing these people, screwing these people doesn't make anybody better off. It just makes these so-called villains even richer than they already are, right? Like the only people who are going to win from this Bed Bath & Beyond transaction are the hedge funds themselves, like Hudson Bay, obviously, the exchanges that are processing all of these trades. Like the trading volume in this thing is bananas. Like it is insane how much stock turns over in this small cap, worthless, super, super distressed retailer. Like it's bonkers. And that's great for all the market makers and all the exchanges out there. The options market in this thing is totally bananas. Like I didn't actually really know how this worked, but there's this zero day options, like zero days to expiry options market. Like if you felt like weekly options were nuts, this is like the the super heroin crack version of weekly options. Like it's just bananas. Like 
And so when these people inevitably lose money on this misguided like thought that they're going to take down the man or whatever, like that's not good. And you're going to create even angrier people, even they're going to be even more disillusioned with how the system works when the system, when it's allowed to function properly is a huge positive for the world. It's good for the economy. It's good for the world. And then it gets distorted into this monstrous Frankenstein thing and it's bad for everybody. Right. Yeah. Big time. And it's, uh, you know, kind of an ongoing saga because then you see Ryan Cohen show up in Nordstrom and meanwhile, I think, Dave Portnoy is kind of out of the market. He seems. Oh, he got. Yeah, he got blown out of. I don't think he's like on doing videos every day about his day trading exploits because I think he was pretty open about the fact that when things started to finally turn the other way in 2021 and 2022, he got killed and lost a lot of money. Well, and sports came back, right? So yeah, right, exactly. Real life, as far as he's concerned, was back in uh, you know center stage. But there's still like a lot of weird stuff that keeps happening in the market too. You know, one of the things I wanted to tie it to a little bit is, um, you know, when ChatGPT started getting some enthusiasm, AI stocks went absolutely nuts. And this doesn't mean that these companies actually do anything in AI, but like the easiest example of that is the ticker AI. It uh, had tripled from its lows to highs just on account of you know, hey, the ticker's AI, AI's taking it over, taking over the world. Um, and then you have, you know, Google having one mistake in there. And full disclosure, I own shares in Google, so talking about something that I'm involved in. But uh, Google makes one mistake in there, uh, it, it has one factual error in their presentation and loses, you know, over 10% of its market cap in the course of a couple of days, just because yep. people start reflexively saying things that aren't even necessarily within the realm of reason. You know, I had someone call me up and say, hey, you know, Microsoft's definitely going to outbid Google to be the default search in Apple. And it's like, well, do you know how much Google's paying for that? $15 billion. How much would Microsoft have to, you know, pay to outbid them? And what percent of Microsoft's own uh, operating income for the year would that be? Well, you know, they're expected to do 85 billion in operating income. You'd have to figure you know, Google could at least go to 20, maybe they'd have to pay 30. So you're talking about something near 40% of their operating income without any clear ROI. People are just getting like so ahead of themselves on these first order thoughts. And the first time I really saw that was in the very beginning of COVID where you started concocting these narratives and then things did for at least some short period of time play out accordingly. Um, And everything just worked. And I feel like it's been a first order market ever since, uh, you know, the COVID crash started, where it's like, you're not really thinking about what second order consequences are, and uh, not even having to take the time to look at true realities. And with meme stocks, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. That's by definition what they exist for. Um, I was just pointed out this ticker today, LUNR, called Intuitive Machines, that helps for going to the moon, and it's at a three and a half billion dollar market cap today because it's tripled on the DSPAC move. I don't even know what the hell this is. There's not even a real description of any business behind it. Um, but wow, uh-huh. yeah. So um, I would have thought over the last year more of this was wrung out. I do think a good chunk of the market had uh, the excesses wrung out. You know, our last podcast was on there's an opportunity in unprofitable companies. So I'm not saying I think you know there's there's a lot that's gone crazy, but. There, there's some degree to which uh, the aftershocks of mean madness are still with us today. 
Well, they're they're very much still with us. I agree with that. And you know, I I I just am stunned that the whole thing. I, I shouldn't be stunned that it happened. Crazy things happen all the time. You live long enough, you're going to see a lot of weird stuff. But the fact that this is, you know, going on year two or year three of this stuff, and we're coming up with new ways to do it, like the ramifications are bad, right? I mean, like in a lot of ways, the political upheaval that we've seen in the past couple of years, the 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 deep, fervent, religious embrace of crypto stuff and the willingness to believe things like FTX is a, is a direct result of the financial crisis that we had in 2008 when everyone, or not everyone, but a huge chunk of the world kind of woke up to the fact that the financial system hadn't been operating well. There was a lot of bad behavior. There was a lot of fraud. There was a lot of nonsense happening and and that was the fallout and so i fear what the fallout's going to be from this so i still don't know what the right answer is if i would ban this stuff outright i mean again like the 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 pragmatist would tell you that if somebody wants to buy something worthless and they're a grown person they should be able to do it and i understand that kind of libertarian view of things i really do but i think you have to consider the knock-on effects and i think the knock-on effects are really bad so you know, again, I'm sure the SEC probably takes some grief for stopping the Hertz equity sale, even though, you know, the actions in hindsight supposedly support the other side. And, and they didn't come in and stop this Bed Bath and Beyond, Beyond, although there could be some litigation around some technicalities that I was reading about. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But they certainly didn't come in and stop it in real time. And I, I, I wonder if they should have. I mean, I really go back and forth on it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the SEC kind of has for a long time focused on disclosure, right? As long as you are disclosing everything, um, you know, people can make up their own mind. But I think, Phil, as you pointed out here in this Bed Bath & Beyond situation, you know, even for very, very sophisticated analysts, it's not very, it's not totally clear how this thing actually works, except that, um, you know, retail investors buying the equity are basically getting screwed no matter what, and uh, and some of the hedge funds are gonna gonna do well no matter what. Um, but yeah, it's a tough. It's it's kind of a tough. Um, I think regulatory um, thing because there is you know judgment involved, and the SEC doesn't want to make investment decisions right they don't want to say what's a bad investment what's what's not a bad investment so they've kind of traditionally focused on disclosure but i think um you know there is a question around the whole regulatory framework um because you know why why are adult investors you know let's call them retail investors not allowed to invest in hedge funds um, but they're allowed to invest in uh, equities that basically are going to pay uh, money to hedge funds um, and screw the retail investors. So in a way, you know, um, the regulatory landscape the way it is now is um, is not really achieving what it's you know supposed to i think uh, accomplish and that's definitely uh something to look at i think um and then just lastly um you know on the this question of sticking it to the man and 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 that stuff i mean that's kind of really ludicrous cuz you're not sticking it to hedge funds by losing money to them you know so 
that's just completely um, makes no sense. Yeah. yeah, like I said, there's there's no coincidence that you know they're they're all these go go put Ken Griffin's name into Twitter or Reddit or whatever, and you'll come up with some absolutely bonkers conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, in very short order, and it's no coincidence that the last couple of years with all this meme stock nonsense have been by far the most profitable year, profitable years ever, both for his hedge fund and for his market making business. So it's it is it's just super ironic that this would be the way that these people would supposedly try to to stick it to the man because they're just self defeating in, in this whole exercise. But I again I hate to go back to Matt Levy, but he had an amazing idea on the regulatory front that I fully support and. His notion here is to create what's called a certificate of dumb investment. So kind of similar to this, like it, he wasn't directly addressing the uh, the Hertz or the the Bed Bath and Beyond trailer. It was it was rolled out in conjunction, kind of the same timing. So maybe it's what made him spur spurred him to think about it. But it, there have also been these calls periodically over time to lessen the regulatory burden on accredited investors, right? So. Roughly speaking, in the U.S., two hundred thousand dollars a year income or a million dollars worth of net worth will get you accredited investment uh, status, and you can qualify for, you know, investments that aren't so strictly regulated by the SEC. To put it in crude terms, right? The idea is to protect widows and orphans, so-called, from being screwed by people that are raising money on, you know, sketchy deals where they're just have oh, no hope funds of understanding. In BC, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. And private equity, but. Um, but yeah, so his idea of the certificate of dumb, dumb investment is, and I'll try to, to read this to get some of it verbatim, is that it's a a one-page contract with a lot of white space attesting that I want to buy a dumb investment. I understand that the person selling it will almost certainly steal all my money. I would be better off doing almost anything else with my money. And I also agree that I will never, ever, ever under any circumstances complain to anyone let alone sue anyone when this investment inevitably goes wrong. I understand that violating this agreement is a felony. <laughs> and you have to sign that one page piece of paper and walk it up to the desk at, you know, the SEC, you know, in, in person, this fictionalized SEC office. And the person behind the desk slaps you in the face and says, are you sure you want to do this? Like now's your last chance to sober up. And you say, yes, I'm really sure. I really want to make this dumb investment. And then she stamps it and you take your, certificate of dumb investment that's been validated and you go off and you buy some stupid crazy investment that's guaranteed to lose you money and cost you financial pain and i think that's great like if that's if that's the regulatory world we want to embrace like that would be way better than this litigious you know regulatory capture nonsense that this this game of hide the pickle that we're constantly playing with with the regulators and the lawyers it would this seems like it'd be a way better way to do it uh, speaking of better ways to do it, I mean, I I think that's freaking perfect. And, you know, buyer beware, that's part of the nature of the markets. But let me ask you this twist. If a company that's bankrupt like Hertz, let's say they had an ATM in place before they went bankrupt and their stock goes meme, would they then have been able to sell like all else be damned? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if they did. I think uh, and again, I'm guessing here because I don't know what the rules would have said, but I think once you're in chapter 11, you know, I don't think you could ever do any sort of financial financing or financial transaction without the bankruptcy judge's approval. And I don't know that there's much precedent in American history or in any, any jurisdiction's history for a company raising unsecured bonds when the senior bonds or senior credits are 
are impaired or certainly not raising equity when there's likely to be a credit impairment ahead of you. So I think it's just so insane that it had never really been contemplated before. I don't think it had ever really happened, which is why, again, like I think you need to actually take the steps now to figure out how you're going to do this, how you're going to regulate it and how you're going to you know, handle this the next time it comes up because it's happened a couple of times now and it's probably going to come up again. And then what are you going to do? Yeah, I've heard non-market people be like, uh, should I buy this stock in bankruptcy? Like, well, you know what happens in bankruptcy, right? But it's also turned into this, should I buy really low price stocks? So I was asked, you know, should I buy Credit Suisse from someone? And I don't tend to answer these questions anyway, but I was like, well, you know, what what makes you think that's a good idea was really the question back. But that's um, an age old, that's an age old problem, right? Where people just kind of mistake like, cause and effect, or they see like a low dollar price and think that that implies a low valuation for some reason. But, you know, this whole notion of like, we're going to sell you stock that we know is worthless. And just because Hertz created its own kind of reflexivity, its own perpetual motion machine and got away with it doesn't mean that the next guy is going to get away with it. And it doesn't mean that it's going to happen with Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, again, we're talking about a retailer here that truly didn't have any future according to anyone in the entire world. None of their competitors, none of the distressed debt funds that are out there, none of the private equity funds that are out there, none of them wanted to bid on these assets, right? Like (laughs) There was no bid. And so what's going to change in the next six to 12 to 18 months as Hudson Bay bleeds all this stock out into the market and sticks it to all these retail traders to make this company more valuable? or to even make it viable. Like this is still a worthless enterprise. And so you're still going to be at the end of the road here at zero. And uh, so should this whole thing have been stopped and have reduced the waste in the system? Because over that 6, 12, 18 month period, however long it takes, the only people who will have made money are the funds, the exchanges, the lawyers, the executives who are still drawing a salary when instead that money could have all been stopped and cut off and put into more productive uses, like a business that actually needs it, that's actually going to do something better, that's actually going to grow, right? Wouldn't that be better? How can you say no, right? I mean, it's it's just absolutely insane. I guess one question I could ask back is, what's Ryan Cohen's plan with Nordstrom? <laughs> is that the next one that's going to kind of end up the same way? Well, no, they're much more financially sound, very different business, just kind of like... Yeah, and the family's, here, still, the family's still involved too, which I don't... That's an odd one. I think there it's almost more of a spite issue because the executive that initially was responsible for a lot of the downfall here at Bed Bath & Beyond actually came from Nordstrom. And so I think there's actually like a personal agenda, almost a vendetta that he wants to see that person off the board at Nordstrom more than anything. And so I think it's a little bit of a different playbook. There, Interesting. But. I was unaware of that wrinkle. And if that's the pure motivation behind putting this money at work, it's it's not that different than some of these people who uh, are buying Hertz and Bed Bath and bankruptcy. Yeah, it's just a weird way to spend your time and your money. I mean, look, I guess you could make the argument that if you remove that executive who he believes is is a detriment to Nordstrom, if you remove him from the board, you've done a service to Nordstrom and its continuing shareholders and its employees and all that kind of stuff. And I, I would agree if you if you go with the supposition that he's correct about that person's ineffectiveness, uh, which I don't have an opinion on, but um, it's a big fight. And so a, 
it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time and expense to to do that. And it's not clear to me what the rewards would be. I mean, again, he can't run an activist campaign in the traditional sense of it because the family still controls the company for all intents and purposes. But I don't know. So I, I keep coming back to this. I, I think for now, where I'll leave this is, I don't think I would issue like, I, again, I'm worried about the unintended consequences of clamping down too hard from a regulatory perspective, even though my first instinct is, the SEC should revisit its guidelines and its rules about companies' ability to sell equity when they clearly know that they're worthless. But I do think there should be, at the very least, like a working group who comes up with some sort of recommendation and guidelines for how the SEC is going to handle meme stock style issues where there are clearly non-economic interests at force forces at work here where the, the the old rules of engagement just don't don't apply anymore and see if there's a better way to handle this because i don't want to say you know a company can't raise money under this and that the other circumstance because there will just be too many loopholes and, and and then you could have unintended consequences where it becomes harder for companies to raise money for legitimate reasons but there, there's got to be a way to stop these retail investors from getting screwed, even though they're asking for it, literally. I mean, it's it's just a weird situation. I, I don't have a good answer for it. Elliot, did you want to jump in with uh, something else here? Well, no, we kind of got you it in the middle. I think I, I tend to agree with Phil on how uh, we should remedy this. I think part of the challenge that I have sorting in my head is the companies who are going to raise money are inherently companies that need money. Um, maybe some who will opportunistically do it, but for the most part, the ones are those who need it. And um, I, I, I wouldn't know how to sort out the nuances in a way that didn't have some unintended consequences in a bad way, other than to say, you know, so I'd, I'd be a little more inclined to say like, this is crazy, let's just let it uh, burn out with the cycle because inevitably it will, you know, enough people lose money and not come back. But uh, education should be enhanced on on what happens in these situations. And maybe there could be some piece that's fed into social media and the forums where people are re reaching these conclusions as to the consequences that they're exposing themselves to. Um, but, you know, to, to John, the point I would I, I was going to make was I, I tie this directly to stuff like AI mooning in the market. And I said mooning because of this lunar stupid thing mooning today, too. Um, there's there's functionally no difference between the two in my eyes, uh, where there's this story that just takes hold and sends something, send it. it, it detaches the stock from anything rational. Um, and I feel like it's a story as old as time. It happens in up and down cycles. Um, I forgot one of the stories I was reading recently about um, even in the Great Depression, there were these mini manias about certain things, new technologies that were emerging. So, you know, they happen in good and bad times. And um, maybe even more at the inflection point between the two. Um, but no good solutions in my mind. Yeah. So there was an interesting comment. I meant to mention this earlier, but you mentioned the, this kind of little spasm of mania we're having about artificial intelligence right now with these headlines that were 
seeing on an almost daily basis in these products that are being rolled out in the chat bots and whatever in the chat GPT fiat. It's I don't know if it's a mania. It's it's just been a big deal. And like I get it. It's it's kind of fascinating on many levels. Uh, but somebody asked Charlie Munger yesterday at the Daily Journal meeting, and this was we're recording this uh, February sixteenth, twenty twenty three. And uh, I thought his response, as usual, was pretty good on this, where he said, "Look, I, and I'm paraphrasing, of course." He said, "AI is a big deal. It's certainly been helpful in areas like underwriting, automobile insurance. It'll probably continue to be a big deal in certain areas, but I don't think it's going to cure cancer, which is interesting because, you know, that sort of predictive." Uh, or, or problem-solving nature of it is, is touted as one of the big benefits. Like uh, unlocking some of these medical mysteries is often bandied about as a, as a big use of AI's powers. And he also said he doesn't think it'll ever help somebody make an intelligent investment, you know, buying an apartment building, buying a commercial property, buying a stock or a bond in a more intelligent way than a human can do it now or a human can do it with the combination yeah. of, of man and machine. So he was pretty dismissive of AI in that regard. And I tended to agree that there was a lot of overhype and a lot of fluff in that regard despite the fact that it is very real it is very powerful it'll it'll be around it will be a big deal just don't get carried away with it right yeah you know and i think one thing that's interesting in all this i the the point on investing right i i used uh chat gpt yesterday to try to figure out something that was a little technical and complex and the first answer i got was really good i thought and very helpful and i asked a follow-up question and the answer I knew was a hundred percent wrong, <laughs> and so it it it's challenging because you don't get the source that the AI. And by the way, one little digression here: I'm I actually am doing what I'm sick of. Uh, ChatGPT is a language learning model. It's like one kind of AI. People are conflating the two with one another. Um, you know, it, it's one kind of AI. There, there's a lot of different ways in which AI is being deployed. This is not the only one, and it shouldn't be the only one that gets attention. Some could actually do a lot better, uh, maybe more profound things for humanity than just language learning models. Um, but there are problems with them. And I was actually passing around an article to some friends this morning, uh, because I don't know if you all have seen, you know, Phil gave the data of this recording. There have now been several instances of ChatGPT actually turning hostile on the people asking questions, hostile yeah, in mentality. But um, I don't know if you guys remember this. In 2014, it was Microsoft who released a chat AI into Twitter. And within one hour of launching, uh, these are dynamic models. They're complex. We don't know exactly what causes them to do things. LLM. Uh, like learning is the middle word of that. They learn based on the feedback they get and the questions they're asked. And so it's an iterative cycle. Uh, within an hour of launching this AI into Twitter in 2014, um, the Microsoft chatbot turned into a Nazi, a self-labeled Nazi that was saying really nasty things. And they had to shut it down very quickly. Like, we don't know where this all is going to go. So it's not worth drawing too many conclusions too fast on it. Yet, my God, have some of the conclusions in the marketplace been very drastic already? Yeah, it's, it's, that's one of the things. I mean, again, I actually wrote about this. I knew that there was a chance that we would turn the calendar to 2023 and just unleash some new updated version of the insanities that we've been dealing with for the past couple of years. And here we are. We're six weeks 
into the year, six and a half weeks into the year. There's all this crazy stuff happening. It's really, it's really amazing. It's it's hard to fathom. And this AI thing has really caught people's imagination. And and you're right, it's it's bonkers. It really is. And it is fun to play around with. It is fun. I I, I refrain from using the word uh, educational, but it is educational insofar as you could uh, play around with it and learn the pluses and minuses. And there are angles where, you know, I think one of the things that I've really come to appreciate uh, in seeing people interact with ChatGPT and using it myself is how there is a distinct skill in being able to derive value from it, that it's not as straightforward as merely asking a question. Uh, it takes a certain thought process. And I think that's been pretty cool to learn and see. Um, and I think there will be some great stuff that comes from it. Uh, but my God, I don't know if it's our times or what, but conclusions are taken to an extreme very quickly. They are. That's what's so weird about this whole era is like just the the suspension of disbelief, the willingness to latch onto the first explanation whether or not it's completely implausible just doesn't even seem to matter the over extrapolation of current or recent trends it just doesn't seem to slow down it's just like a fever a fever dream across the whole world and the whole economy it's really crazy i forgot the engineering term for it but like i know af- after earthquakes um you get these aftershocks but there's like a there there's like a di- an atrophy rate uh, from the most extreme event and it gradually narrows down to less and less extremes. And I feel yeah. like that's part of what we're experiencing in our reopening post-COVID. Like, you know, things are giddy. It's not quite as insane as it was. Um, it's a lot narrower than it was, but it's not going away. There's, It's lingering. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but maybe sometime in the next year, it all decays away. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, that's a good point about like what the half life, so to speak, is of the the craziness, and uh, whether we'll get back to what any of us would have called normal, reasonable, rational, rational levels in the world anytime soon. I don't know. You're right. It's it's certainly gone on longer than I would have ever guessed before. So here we are. Yeah, but I, I would say, you know, bear markets can drag on for a long time. I mean, we are, if if it is a bear market, um, we're in the early innings here. And, um, you know, people just kind of don't forget the, the euphoria of the mania so quickly. Um, they really need to get kind of exhausted and beaten down uh, just over a longer period of time. Uh, I think now, you know, we're still too close to to the mania we did have that anytime there's some kind of a rebound, people get hopeful that, you know, is this the beginning of a, of everything being good again? And, and we can just go and, uh, you know, have the casino uh, mentality and, and the animal spirits uh, flare up again. Um, I think, you know, like bear markets really end with like exhaustion and people basically giving up on equities altogether. And uh, maybe, you know, what's happening with Bed Bath & Beyond is just a sign that we're not even anywhere close to that. Yeah, Um, no, that's right. You would have thought last year would have shaken us out a little bit more and gotten us closer, but I think you might be right there, John. Maybe we're not. 
and you know ultimately i mean we're we're dealing with human nature here you know greed and fear have been around forever they're going to still be around and the expressions of those um you know basic kind of uh human emotions um they change over time and it's just just really very very hard probably impossible for anyone uh including the regulators to to completely um shut down all symptoms of that i mean that's you know that's why a lot of uh investors are bad investors cuz even even people who are sophisticated investors they still succumb to greed and fear yeah. um and you can't regulate that away so um yeah it's it's going to be fascinating to watch um you know we'll we'll have we'll have things to talk about i'm sure for we will yeah on this podcast do, do either source of guys, content do either of you guys fall on either end of the spectrum where you would say if you were the benevolent dictator of the sec or of the entire world you would have outright banned the hertz transaction and the bed bath and beyond transaction or are you at the other end of the spectrum where you'd say caveat emptory if you if you get the right any level of disclosure and you know that what you're buying is worthless you should be able to do it no no prohibitions of any kind that's too hard a question phil i don't really yeah, know fair enough <laughs> no fair enough i don't know where I, I i would probably fall like in the 60th or 70th percentile toward the restrictive end but i wouldn't be at a hundred percent or a full outright ban and i agree it's a tough question if you want to punt it that's fair i think i'm well i my they the my sincere answer would be i'm a little more open to what's going on in bed bath than i am with what's going on in hertz i don't know why but it just seems a little different in that sense yeah i think for me it's 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 also too hard of a call phil uh depends how dictatorial i would feel on any given day because um, you know, as a benevolent dictator, I also would have shot down a lot of the SPACs, a lot of the Chamath uh, SPACs <laughs> yeah, that right. I saw. Um, so, you know, um, maybe maybe it's it's either a benevolent dictator or like my Charlie Munger uh, persona. Uh, I think with that, a lot of things wouldn't exist, including crypto. And but again, you know, then we're getting into very dangerous territory because you know people should be free to do dumb things and learn from them um ideally you learn from the mistakes of others you get educated but we know that that's not how a lot of people work probably most yep. people and um we can't change that you know then you get to the nanny state and and that's not what we want so yeah um you know that said there's probably better you know things that can be done better it's just kind of you're never gonna get it exactly right because we're dealing with humans and that's just ultimately um you know not like we're it's it's not physics you know yep i agree 100 same same all right well thank you guys another fascinating discussion and thanks everyone for listening uh we'll talk to you soon take care for now 
Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.